The following message by Shane Sowers is brought to you by Central Baptist Church, Aurora, Colorado. www.cbcaurora.com Thank you, Don, for that word. Um, okay, today we're going to continue in, in Haggai chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 5 this morning. Um, a pastor uh, shares a story from his own life meeting a young kid while he was surfing. It's, it's amazing. In Hawaii, if you're, our, if you're a pastor in Hawaii, it's like you automatically have to surf. It's like if you don't surf, you can't be a pastor in Hawaii. He says this, A few weeks ago when I was out surfing, there was no one else in the water. In fact, there was no one around at all except a guy the size of Goliath doing Taekwondo on the beach. After I'd been out for a little while, a tiny wisp of a kid came paddling up out of nowhere. I couldn't believe he was out there by himself. He pulled his little board right up next to mine. He was so small, he hardly needed a board. He could have stood up in the ocean on a frisbee. Anyway, he started chatting with me like we were old friends. He told me his name was Shane. It wasn't me. (laughs) He asked me how long I'd been surfing. I asked him how long he'd been surfing. Seven years, he said. How old are you? I asked. Eight. He asked me about my kids. He asked me about my family. Then he said, what I like about surfing is that it's so peaceful. You meet a lot of nice people here. You're a nice guy, Shane, I said. That's why you meet nice people. We talked a little longer, and then I asked him, how did you get here, Shane? He said, my dad brought me. Then he turned around and waved at the nearby empty beach. The Goliath, doing martial arts, waved back. Hi, son, he called out. Then I knew why Shane was so at home in the ocean. It wasn't his size. It wasn't his skill. It was who was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching, and his father was very big. Shane wasn't really alone at all, and neither are we. See, the presence of God is what I will refer to as the best of the best blessings. Now, if God can give us blessings, the best of the best blessing, I believe, is the presence of God. And it is also one of the things that's doubted by many in our culture today. It is a very, very common response, especially when many of us are having hardship, when we're going through difficulty, when we're experiencing a lot of suffering. The question that we hear all the time when people are going through a difficult time is, where is God? Why has he abandoned me? Shane, it's like God has turned his back on me. Is he even there? Does he even care? Where is he? And it's not like it's unbecoming for those who follow hard after the heart of God to say these things. Why? We see in Psalm chapter 13, verse 1. Psalm chapter 13, verse 1. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? It's a common response when things are hard. 
And I can remember saying many times, even in my own personal life, when things get really hard, I would pray. I would get on my knees. I would pray. And I try really hard not to say, you know, God, where are you? Why have thou forsaken me? I try really hard not to say that. I say things like this. God, I can get through all of this no problem if I just knew for sure you were there. (laughs) If I just knew you were there, I'd be okay. But why would I say something like that? Because the presence of God is the best of the best blessing. It's the comfort of Goliath watching me on the beach. Many times we are focusing on one or two of the attributes of God. And I think this is sometimes when it comes to prayer, you know, and and when God does things, when he stretches out his hand and he does things, when he says he brings his arm out for you, when he walks to you, when he says these and speaks these things, all this stuff, he goes, and, and many times we do this and we see this, and if God does anything like that, it is an absolute blessing. When we focus on one or two of the characteristics of God, we focus again specifically maybe on the hand of God, the voice of God, the judgment of God, the love of God, even, especially every day, the generous grace of God. But in reality, when we do that, all we're getting is a part of God. We get part of the totality of who God is. We only get a piece of the pie when the whole thing is absolutely 100% available. When you go shopping for baseball gear or you're getting set up for your new mixed martial arts venture, you could go to dad and say, hey, dad, can I have some money so that I can get some baseball gear for this coming season? And sure, you could ask dad and dad says, well, how much do you need? You get, he says, ah, maybe a hundred bucks. Then he gives you a hundred bucks. You go and you go shopping. You do all that stuff. You got, you got all the stuff put together and then you realize a hundred dollars wasn't enough. Man, I should have asked my dad for more. So now I got to make decisions. I got to negotiate. I got to think if I'm going to put things on hold, I'm going to put things on layaway, you know, or I got to choose or I got to settle because all we got is $100 from dad. But let me tell you something. If you take dad with you, (laughs) you take dad with you, you got all that dad has to give. Access to it all. You don't just have Goliath's hand. You don't have his foot, his arm, his feet. Now when I'm saying Goliath, I'm talking about the kid in the story, right? Not not the Goliath, because he he, he don't have no head. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) You don't just have parts of Goliath. You have it all. When the presence of God is there, You get it all. It's not just a part of him. It's not some of him. It's not a little bit of him. It's all of God. You get all the incommunicable and communicable attributes of God. All that he has, all that he is, is what we have at our right hand. No matter what the problem, no matter what the task, no matter what the limitation, no matter the obstacle, we know we will make a stand because the Lord is with us. And that's a powerful feeling. Isn't it? When you just know it's like what you're doing and what you're struggling through, what you're wrestling through. It's hard. But if you know that you know that you know that you know that the Lord is with you, 
It's hard for us to be discouraged, isn't it? No matter the limitation, the presence of God is that thing that will hold us fast in times of discouragement. It's the marvelous beauty of how important and special the presence of God is. The Lord makes every effort to dwell with his people. So much so. That's, that's how important it is, right? Did you see that? Did you get that? Let me, before I jump to this next part, I just want to make sure we got that. That's how important the presence of God is. And the Lord knows how important the presence of God is because we see that God, with the great chasm that's between us, is doing everything in his power to dwell with his people from the beginning. The temple of God. So much so, he wants to dwell with us so much so that he is willing to send his one and only son, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. This is the beauty of what we're going to see in our passage today. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Then on October 17th of that same year, the Lord sent another message through the prophet Haggai. Say this to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of God's people in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How, in comparison, does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. But now the Lord says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you still left in the land. And now get to work, for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. So don't be afraid. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And again, we pray that it be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and that it will accomplish your purpose. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, only two points. The first thing we'll look at today is the constant and controlling discouragement that comes when we constantly compare our grass to the greener grass of our neighbor. The second thing we're going to look at is the beauty and wonder of the presence of God when the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So our thesis statement today is this. Again, if you don't know, the thesis statement is me trying to summarize the entire sermon in one sentence. I like the way Brian Chappell says it. He goes, you know, pastors, you make sure that you got your thesis statement. And he goes, he does a great way of describing uh, how, how do you do a thesis statement. So all those of you that are going to be, or, you know, preaching, all that stuff, right? So if you're going to do your thesis statement, he says, this is what you do. You think. You know how your wife comes up to you and says, hey, honey, are you ready this morning to preach on Sunday? Yes, I'm ready to preach. And she goes, what are you going to preach about? The thesis statement is the answer to that question. Though sin, so honey, though sin and the pattern of this world cause us to be discouraged by our constant comparing with our neighbors, we will see that no matter what the verdict, the scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit will cause us to see that better is one day in the courts of God than 1,000 anywhere else. Better is one day with God than 1,000 anywhere else. Number one, point number one, always comparing. That's our culture today. Culture is Always, we're always comparing. 
Ecclesiastes talks about us being motivated to success because we envy what our neighbor has. Motivated to success because of envy, because we're always looking over the fence at what our neighbor has. It didn't take long after the work began for the people of God to become discouraged. Wait a minute, Shane, you're talking about revival last week, man. Already? Already? They're discouraged? This is what prompted the second sermon here given by the prophet Haggai. Now, what we have to make sure that we, we've got to make sure that we see this here. Really important. So help us in life. This discouragement did not come because they were out of gas. It didn't come because they were out of gas and they just got too tired to do the work. We just got no strength, no mo. It's not because, um, because they were supernaturally unmotivated with the sparked enthusiasm that they actually had. It's not because they had no vision. It's not because they had no clue. It's not because they were lost in utter confusion. No. The people of Israel were discouraged because they were comparing. Whoa. Yeah. Right there, in the middle of a revival, sparked enthusiasm, they got discouraged because they were comparing. They were comparing the work that they were doing with the work that was done before. They were comparing the temple that they were building with the temple that Solomon built, and it struck their hearts. That was about 70 years, roughly, since the temple was destroyed by Babylon. And some of the people that came back, you know, probably in you know, the twilight of their lives, came back and they still remember what the temple looked like. Can you imagine that? Coming back from Babylon, going back to the land, and you still remember what Solomon's temple looked like. They were thinking about that. They were remembering it. Can you imagine? I mean, you, you, when you read about what Solomon's temple was like, it's extraordinary, isn't it? All the gold, the gold that was everywhere. Describing all the gold that overlaid the walls. They described all the precious stones that garnished the site. They described, remember the porch? Oh, the porch of Solomon's temple and the magnificent pillars that were built. Now that was an amazing temple. If you remember, it was more than amazing. It's like you can't even describe how amazing Solomon's amazing temple was. There's just no words to describe it. So the communication was that we're, you know, um, we're extracting from this is essentially you guys do realize that we're building the temple, but you do realize we're not even close. We are not even close to building the temple the way Solomon did. We will never be able to do all of that. What are we doing here? So let's look at verse three really quick. Go back, Haggai, uh, Haggai chapter two, verse three. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. And it, you know, and as you go through this and you see the rendering of it, it's really pointed. Compared to Solomon's temple, People were, were thinking that this temple's nothing. Zero, zilch, 
nothing at all. Why was it discouraging? Because it was like that all the work that they were doing was all for nothing, working for nothing. I can remember my days, you know, going through Bible college and all that stuff. I remember the days of working for a general contractor and, and this general contractor, we were building houses. Okay, so those of you that are in the mechanical construction type things, you, you will absolutely resonate with what I'm about to share with you right now. I remember the days we were building houses and many times, especially when you're building new houses, right? We did things that had to be done over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and we did it because some of these things needed to be tore down. Somebody read the plans wrong. You did something wrong. Something happened behind the wall. You did all this stuff. Or the homeowner sometimes will come in and just be like, that's, that, that's a beautiful, beautiful fireplace you got here. But I think that it would probably look better if it was maybe moved over an inch more. Just move it over just a little bit more. Then you're just scratching your head. Do you know how long it took me to do that? Do you know? And many times in the construction site, we would hear these very words. People would say this all the time. We did all that work for nothing. All that work for nothing. <laughs> Think about it. We do not like doing things for nothing. We put time, we put effort, we put our heart, our passion, what my boss used to say all the time, our blood, sweat, and tears. See, there's a lot of you guys out there know what I'm talking about. He would say that all the time. My blood, sweat, and tears went into that fireplace. Blood, sweat, and tears. And we become very frustrated. And in the end, we say it's all for nothing. And I remember, this is the thing used to bother. My, the big boss used to come in all the time and we're all looking at the fireplace that's got to be moved and we're all like, oh my God, all that work for nothing, all our blood, sweat, and tears, all of this stuff for nothing. And the big boss would come in and the big boss would go, well, you know what, guys, what you need to do is you need to look at this as job security. It just, just, it just keeps you working, keeps you doing stuff, right? Logically, you think about that and it makes sense, right? But for some reason, it never, ever, 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 ever made us feel better. Why? Because we don't like working for nothing. And when and we do all that work for nothing, we just, it just doesn't make us feel better because we do not like doing things for nothing. Now, this is even more discouraging what was happening in Israel. It's having to do a job, and you're wanting to do the job, already knowing when you're halfway done, three-quarters of the way done, a fourth of the way done, you know, some commentators, we're not exactly sure where they were with this, all this stuff, where they are, all they know is that they got to finish the job, but knowing that when they finish the job, it's going to be for nothing, because it doesn't compare to what Solomon's temple was like. We know it's nothing, but we're still going to do it anyway. Oh! discouraging. Why did the people feel like they were building nothing at all? Why did they think that all this work was going to be for nothing? Why did they think that? Because they were comparing. 
This is our culture today. It just seems like we cannot get away from this. So get ready. Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. They were comparing, comparing their work to the work of others. They were doing what they were doing. They were saying because they were looking at it, comparing it. It's not even close. It's good, but it's not like it was back in the day. You remember my grandmother used to say this all, all the time. They don't make them like they used to. Right? Looking back, they don't make them like they used to. The comparison, is it even worth it? They got discouraged. They were troubled. They were at a standstill, debilitating so much so that it would halt the work of a revived people. Revived, strengthened, encouraged, ready to go. But then they're looking going, you know what? Solomon's temple, see, that's winner work. That's the work winners do. What we're building here, this is the work losers do. This is the loser temple. Winner temple, loser temple. We're just losers. A revived people discouraged because of comparison. Now, a lot of times we don't think about the power of comparison. We don't think about this. We don't think when we compare, juxtapose our lives with another person's life, when we do those types of things, we don't think just how absolutely powerful this thing is. Comparison. And so much discouragement will set in today because of comparisons. I I told you many times, 30 years being in ministry, you counsel a lot of people. And many people who are discouraged, I want to say 9.7% of the time. Maybe 9.8% of the time. Ah, 9.9. You know what? 100% of the time. When people are discouraged... It's because they're comparing their lives to somebody else. It's always that. Family, it's always comparing. It's always looking at the other, uh, your neighbor's lawn and saying, the grass is greener. Or maybe you're the neighbor that goes, yeah, my grass is greener. <laughs> We're constantly comparing. And when we do get discouraged, you can see it's constantly comparing. But you know what? We'll hear a sermon and sermons that are out there that talk about this very thing will tell you not to compare yourself with other people. Don't compare your life with other people's lives. You hear about all this stuff, but you know what? We do it anyway. We still do it. It's like we just can't help doing it. It's like it's part of our nature. We're just going to do that. We're going to do it anyway. And then we're let down because my life is not as good as my labor's life. They've got it so good. I've got it so bad. When in reality, actually, their life is actually worse than yours because you can't see what's going on behind the scenes. It's always that way. A lot of it's that way. I don't like, I don't like this, this feeling that I get because I don't look like that person over there. So some of the, young, uh, the younger girls with their parents that I talk to about this type of stuff, they're always like, you know, I just don't look like that girl in this. And, you know, they pull up pictures of, of the girls that they went to school with and, you know, all this stuff, and they bring it up on Facebook. And they go, ah, look at her. I don't look like that. 
And then she goes, Pastor Shane, look, look, I'm not that pretty. And I look at that and I, first thing I see, okay, obviously there's filters. <laughs> Nobody's face is that flawless. And you look at the face and you go, is there even hair? I mean, there's just none, right? Just none. None. Just filters, all this stuff. And then, and then I'm having to, and I used to have it in my backpack. I don't use it very much anymore. But I used to have this one a clip that I had faced that I would bring up on YouTube all the time to show some of the girls that did this. And it was um, a, a model. And, and it, was a, it was showing the time lapse of what happens with the model. So here's the model. She comes in, you know, and when she comes in, she's, right? And then they give her some coffee. And then the muscles in the face go up. All right. Then they start putting on makeup. And it's all time lasts. And the makeup goes. The hair goes. And then, wow. Okay. Pretty. Yeah. I get it. I see. Millions of pictures are taken. And then they go to Photoshop. And then in Photoshop, they show the time lapse where they pull her chin down. They pull the cheeks up. They raise the eyes. They raise the eyebrows. They do this. They color the hair. All this stuff. You know, you see the back of the stuff. You know, the, somehow the lips kind of go up. They shade the teeth. The lips come back down. You know, all this stuff. There's all kinds of things that happens in Photoshop. And then you look at the picture that they're done with, and then they show it on the billboards on the streets in California. And then I'm showing them, look at this, and look at the model. And look at the picture that's on the billboard. It's not the same person. And we're comparing ourselves with this. And comparing ourselves with things that are not even real. (laughs) Not even real. And we think that we can't measure up to that. One of the most beautiful women in the world, a model, one of the most beautiful women in the world, she doesn't even meet up to that. Come on, Donna, help me here. You, what, what is, what's going on here? What's happening here? Our comparison, we just can't stop ourselves from comparing. Comparing their work to the work of others. What we are doing is not even close. It's not like it was back in the day. So much discouragement. I don't look like that person. I don't have what that person has. I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses and I just can't keep up. My house doesn't look like their house. I saw on Facebook that this summer they vacationed in Florida. What did we do? We went to Denny's. And I looked at my kids and I said, look, you get the international breakfast. (laughs) At least we'll feel like we're in another country. (laughs) We did nothing. We can't afford to go on vacation. You know what? I was looking at my neighbor and stuff like that. Did you know that my neighbor can start his car from inside of the house? I still start my car with jumper cables. <laughs> I don't have nice clothes like, oh, Sue Ellen from across the street. I don't have a swimming pool like Bob has in his house. Tim got a flat screen TV. Yeah, well, you know what? I got one too. Yeah, but Tim's is curved. 
Why do I try? Why do I even bother? I can't keep up. We can't keep up, so we give up. It's our culture. It's our culture today. And for many of us, I'm talking to me too. I'm just as guilty of this, I know. I Me too. The only reason why we feel like a loser is because we compare ourselves to somebody else. Seriously, if you were to stop comparing, stop comparing yourself to other people, I think you would actually feel pretty good. You would actually feel pretty good about yourself. I'm just, I'm just taking a guess. Stop comparing ourselves to others. He's better. She's prettier. He has more money. She's better with people. He's stronger. She's smarter. He, she, he, she. And it goes on and on and on. And for many of us, we look at our life and it just seems like it's nothing at all. Saying just like the Israelites did when it came to the temple. It seems like nothing at all. Maybe the world would be a better place if I was just gone. Nothing at all. But what's more, this is where it gets hard within our culture today. We wrestle with that just with ourselves, right? If, if nobody helped us, we would have just a hard time just comparing just by ourselves and feeling discouraged, right? The problem is in our culture today, other people contribute to this as well. That's what makes it harder. Other people contributed. Other people confirm it. It seems like that it, it was the other, the, the, the people. See, when you look at the passage of scripture, it was the people who saw the temple, right? The other people wouldn't know if they never saw the temple. They're just building a temple. It was the other people who saw the temple, experienced the temple. They're the ones that were going, man, that's not what Solomon's temple looked like. Yeah, these walls are nice, they're plumb. They're straight, you know, good for insulation. But Solomon's temple, it was gold, man. It was gold, you know. It was just, it, I mean, it was precious gold. It was the good kind of gold. Man, if you went into the temple and you got done and you went and you took the zipper on your jacket and you went, <laughs> you could pay your electric bill for the next year. That's Solomon's temple. It was the people telling the people what Solomon's temple was like and expressing to them that it's nothing. It doesn't even compare. It's the other people that are doing that. Our culture and our society will tell you that you don't meet up. It's bad enough you, you, you think that you're a loser anyway. What happens when other people say it too? Ooh, here we go. Other, our culture and our society confirm that if you are not at a certain standard, then you are a loser. I, I get, and I get this. I get it. So, you know, one of the things that is, is really funny, since we've started our um, social media outreach, I've been a little bit more aware of what's happening out there in social media. And, the, you, you know, if you're not, you're not missing a ton. But there is this one, one that I've been actually kind of enjoying a little bit um, is... What will happen is a guy will walk up to a girl, she's walking the streets in Miami or something like that, and just a regular guy, regular clothes, T-shirt and jeans, will just walk up and be like, hey, how's it going? Hey, you, you, you seem like a really nice person, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to take you out on a date if I could. 
you know, can I get your number? And she's like, no, no. First, first off, she's just like, you know, why are you talking to me? That's the first thing. Why, why are you talking to me? You talking to me? You can't be talking. Oh, you're talking to me. Okay. Well, you know, that, that'd be nice, but I'm busy. I got things to do. Oh, but, but could you, you know, maybe you want to take some time and just maybe try to get to know me? Oh, I got a boyfriend. Oh, okay. Uh, how about we, maybe later, can we try to do blah, 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 blah. No, I'm just not interested. You know what? You're just not my type. You know what? Just go away. And the guy goes, okay, fine. And then he walks to a Ferrari, <laughs> opens the door, walks into the Ferrari, and right about ready to sit down, all of a sudden, the girl is running. Um, 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 is that your car? <laughs> what did you say your name was? And the guy's like, what about the boyfriend? Uh, well, he's really just kind of just a friend, you know. But, you know, I was looking to kick him to the curb anyway. And then all the stuff goes, and then he gets into the Ferrari. And she goes, oh, you're not going to take me? And he turns on his car, and he goes, you know what? That'd be really nice, but I don't date gold diggers. And he drives away. (laughs) Now, we watch a video like that, right? We watch a video like that, and we laugh. Because it's funny. It is funny. And I I watch the video, and it's funny. But then, when we stop laughing... We sit there quiet and we think, why? You know why? Because the message is still clear. Funny, but the message is still clear. If you're not driving a Ferrari, you're not worth anything. We get enjoyment out of that because the guy has what she is really looking for. What about the guy that doesn't have what they're looking for? That's the part that sets in. That's the sad part. That's the part where it's like, you know, you're watching it on the phone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then reality sets in. Because the message is still clear. You are not worth anything unless you have something worth it. If you're not somebody, then you're nobody. You got no money, you get no honey. That's the message that we're being given. That's the message that are being sent to to the kids today. That's the message. That's what's going on. That's what's going out. And I remember even confirming it with one of my friends at the gym just this past week. I was asking him, you know, he's dating right now. And he's just like, man, you know, Shane, it's just really hard, you know, hard to do and all this stuff. And I'm like, really? So dating is really hard. So apparently, family, just dating is really hard these days. I thought it was really hard back then, but it's really hard, I guess, these days. Dating is really hard. And he says the one thing. He goes, man, girls today, they just want guys that have lots of money. That's what he said. And then I think about it. When he said that, it reminded me. You know, when I was like in, I think I was maybe like in the eighth grade. This is, I'm going to date myself here. I was only in the eighth grade. Madonna comes out with a song called Material Girl. We're living in a material world, and I am a material girl. You know that we are living and you listen to that song. And I remember when I was a young guy listening to that song, I thought it was cool. It was like a popular song, you know, all this kind of stuff. But then it was like it hit me, right? And it hit, the reality hit. 
And it was just like, man, I might never get married unless I'm rich. I might never get married unless I have money. And other people will do that. And like, so you're talking to, to other people, you know, you're talking to your cousins and you know, one day when I, when I grow up, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have a kid and all this stuff and be like, well, you know, Shane, what are you going to do in your life with your life? You know, what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. I thinking about possibly being a preacher. Oh, you know, there's no money in that. Well, why is that important? Because Shane, we're living in a material world and girls are material girls. But, but, but I want a girl that's going to love me for me and not care about the money that I make and about my success. The girl is just going to love me. Whether I'm a loser, whether I'm, I make a lot of money, whether I don't make a lot of money, no matter what, I'm on a girl that's going to love me for me. And I remember my uncle saying, what planet are you talking about? <laughs> and family, it's not any better in the church. The comparisons still happen in the church. People are comparing all the time. People are making judgments because of comparisons all the time. Even in ministry, we find envy. In the church, we find jealousy. All coming because of comparison. Even, remember back in the day when we used to carry Bibles, and our Bibles weren't in our phones, but we would actually carry Bibles? I'm thinking like late 80s, early 90s, like the rage at the time was your Bible cover. You know, you remember that? We used to cover our Bibles. You used to have a Bible that you put into this cool, and they had the cool covers. You had the regular vinyl covers that most everybody had. But then somebody would walk in with an eel skin Bible cover. They would walk in with a Bible cover that's got all kinds of bling on it. Leather, Bible covers, all that kind of stuff. And it was almost like you're looking at that going, I think that person might be a little more spiritual than me. And then we're whining and complaining because we're depressed all week because we don't have an eel skin Bible cover. The more committees you're involved in, you know, that person is involved in so many committees here at the church. And because you're involved in so many committees, I think that person is getting more life and life more abundant because they are. I don't get none of that. Even we who are married in the church, you know, gives us the significance that we're looking for. Right? Because in the church, we love to just say, well, what does your spouse do for a living? What does your spouse do for a living? What your spouse, what does your spouse do for the church? We like to walk into the church with our trophy husband, walk into the church with our trophy wife, and just let everybody know I'm standing here with my trophy wife and we're worshiping God, trying to. You know, you're worshiping God, but then you're peeking to see if anybody's watching you. (laughs) Yep, yep, this is my new wife. Oh, oh, you're looking at my wife. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my wife. Trophy wife. You know why I'm blessed with a trophy wife? Because God loves me more than you. (laughs) And the thing is, is that we're sitting back there and we're looking at that going, wow, did you see? Did you see? Shane's new wife. God loves him more than me. 
we're thinking that. Like, all the stuff. So we would go and we do, we'd get trophy wife, all this stuff, and then we find out that trophy spouses aren't that great. Trophy spouses are like trophies. They're great at first, but when you want to keep them on the wall, for some reason they won't stay there. <laughs> After five years of all of this stuff, now you're only happy when you got your trophy boxed up in and locked in the closet. Now I'm happy. Constant comparison even happens at the highest level. At pastor gatherings that I go to all the time, I'll never forget this one time. Uh, pastor gathering, SBC, we got together. I'm sitting at the dinner table, and all the, the guys that are around the t- table when we're having dinner, all of them mega church pastors. All of them. Every single one of them. At least 5,000 people at their church. Some of these guys you would even know. They're that, they're that famous. Sitting at the table, and here I am, Shane. You know, pastor in Hawaii, right, at the time. I think maybe we had like maybe 120, maybe 110 people. I'm sitting over there with a church of maybe a little over 100. These guys are talking about, you know, back then we did this one thing. We had, you know, 10,000 people do this and we had to accommodate 5,000 people. We had to accommodate 700 people. We had to do They're talking all this kind of stuff and I'm like eating my food going, I don't belong here. Why am I even sitting at this table? I don't belong here. And I'm hearing some of the things that they're saying and the stuff that is happening and all these things that's going on. And I'm thinking, find myself sitting at these tables and I'm thinking, why not me? Why even bother? It's like nothing at all. And you sit there all discouraged. And then, you guys will appreciate this, and then I do what a good pastor should do. I snap myself out of it. Shane, what are you doing? Don't think like this. This is nothing. Remember what it is that you're doing and why you do it. Your audience is one. Capital O. I'm here to please my commanding officer. I'm here to do what it is that he needs to do. Yeah, and I remember these kinds of things and you get really discouraged. And so family, I remember at a, at a conference, a gospel coalition uh, conference. Hey, Donna, you need a break? Or you got it? Okay. Um, I remember I was at this conference, Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition in Hawaii, we put on this conference, and we invited Mark Devers. Uh, He's the nine marks of a healthy church guy. Excellent ministry. Mark Devers is just great. And I remember that this, it just so happened that I'm, I'm doing some things for nine marks and Mark, was, Mark comes in and Mark's sitting there and then we start having this conversation, me and, and Mark ever. And so we're talking and, you know, Mark is asking, you know, how are things and all that. And I was just honest with him, you know. He's just a great guy, you know, honest. So I was just honest with him. I didn't give him the, oh, yeah, we're fine, we're fine, you know, everything's good. No, I just said, you know, Mark, it's, it's really hard right now. It's just like I'm in this point of real discouragement. Well, why? Well, because, you know, all this stuff is happening and things aren't happening for me and all this stuff. And Mark says, okay, Shane, sit down. And Mark told me a story. He said this, a pupil of Puritan John Brown, he was newly ordained, young pastor, newly ordained, and he was over a small congregation. And after some time, this young pastor became very discouraged because all the churches around him was growing and he was doing stuff, but they weren't. All these churches doing awesome, but they weren't. And this young pastor says to John Brown, this, tells him this whole story. John Brown writes back, and this is what he said. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified 
that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. Complaining about the small, but bringing perspective that one day I'm going to have to give an account for my small church. Yeah, I'm going to think I had enough people. I'm going to think I had enough people real fast. And so it's the same for us all, not just in ministry, but for us all. We compare and think that we do not have the riches, the wealth. I mean, this kind of seems like that in our culture today, right? So I'm picking on the riches and the wealth. The riches and the wealth and the vanity of our hearts will declare that we want more material goods. I'll be happier if I just had a little bit more material goods. If I just had a little bit more materialist materialism. I would be happy. But see, here's the thing that we miss out. We're, we're wanting and we're desiring and say, hey, Pastor Shane, man, you know, I just need more money. I just need to be rich. If I'm going to get the girl, I got to be more, I got to have more money. I got to have more of this stuff. I got to drive myself a Ferrari. You know, I got to have all of these types of things. I just got to have all this stuff. I need to be rich. I need to be rich, completely forgetting that James chapter five, verses one to five, James chapter five, verses one or five, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. See, you think that having more money is going to make your problems go away. The Bible is telling you something different of all the terrible troubles that are ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. The corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers who you have cheated of their pay, the cries of those who harvest your field and reach the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire, and all you did was fatten yourself for the day of slaughter. Oh, but Shane, Shane, I know what that, that's what the scripture says, but you don't understand. I just need... Wealth, I need riches. I need this in my life. First Timothy chapter six, verses nine and 10. First Timothy chapter six, verses nine and 10. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is what we're yearning for? This is what we're pining for? This is what we just gotta have or we just can't be happy? Now again, this is not saying that, you know, if, you're rich, if you have money that you're going to hell. Okay, I'm not condemning rich people. If, anybody, if any of you guys are rich, I mean, rich is relative these days, right? Any of you guys are rich, this is not me condemning you to hell. These are scriptures that are warning you of hell, though. Warnings. 
Why? Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Revelation 3, 17. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You don't realize it. That's the thing I tell people about riches sometimes. You become blinded to your actual plight. You are blinded with who you really are. You think that you can hide behind the money because the world lets you hide behind the money. But when the judgment of God comes and his light shines, all that money is going to burn away and you can't hide behind nothing. Who you are, what you are, is going to be exposed. And we think that we're okay. Why? Because we're comparing ourselves to other people. Well, you know what? I'm good. I'm okay. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I have all this stuff. And I'm better than these people. So therefore, I'm okay. I'm better. They have been blinded by the wealth. So interesting. Comparing ourselves with others don't just encourage, discourage. It deceives us too. Why do we think that we're okay today? This is everybody now. Everybody, think about it. Why do we think that we are okay today? Sometimes I'll ask people like, are you going to go to heaven? You think you're going to go to heaven? Most people will be like, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I'm a pretty good person. What makes you say that you're a pretty good person? You know what they're going to do? Start comparing themselves. I'm not like those murderers out there. I'm not like those liars, the people who cheat on their taxes. I'm not like those people who run red lights and cut people off in traffic. I'm not like that. God's not going to judge me because I am not like that. I'm okay. God sees that I'm a pretty good person, so I'm going to be okay. I am not as bad as those people are. So we think we're okay with God because we're not as bad as other people because we're comparing ourselves. But we got to wake up to the word of God today. James chapter 2 verse 10. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who broke all the laws. So you broke one law. You're standing next to the person who broke them all. When God looks at the both of you, he's going to see what? Guilty. On both of you. We become even more deceived because we keep comparing ourselves to others. The scripture is showing us that God will not judge us on a curve. He will judge us against perfection. So any failure is failure. That's the truth. No matter how much we try to compare, that's, that's the truth. A group of men were in a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The boat got a hole in it. And the boat sank. And all the men were treading water. And they're like, oh, okay, I think California is that way. Yeah, we all agree. California is that way. Middle of the Pacific Ocean. They start swimming. And then an argument breaks out with the men. The argument breaks out. (laughs) And the argument was, who could swim the farthest? An argument breaks out. They start to argue with each other. They start to fight. Who can swim the farthest? And then one of them says, who cares? You guys realize we're all going to die. A group of students got their tests back. Some scored a 20%, some scored a 30, some scored a 40, but most of them scored a 50. And all the guys that scored a 50% on their test, they were standing there and they were bragging about how smart they are 
how all these other guys, look at how dumb they are, but look at how smart we are. We got a 50% on my test. We start to brag that we got the highest score in the test. And the teacher walks out, walked by them and said, who cares? It's still an F. What matters is not what you know and who you know, your status, all this. It doesn't matter what you know and who you know. What matters is are you known by Christ? Or are you going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Judgment is real. Judgment is everlasting. And judgment is, in the pla- is the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the place of everlasting fire. It's the place of eternal darkness. It's real. But can we be saved from this? Absolutely we can. You bet we can. It's because the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God's presence was with us. He came with us. That's the encouragement today. That's what God says. Look, I know you think the temple is nothing at all, but let me tell you something. I am with you. I'm with you. Well, no matter what this temple looks like at the end, I am with you. I'm going to be there with you. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Oh yeah, and family, the promises continue. All who call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. No, shall be saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. No, you will be saved. So you see, family, the real issue was not the quality of the temple, but was the God that's with them. No matter what the temple looks like, build it. God says that he will be there with them. And family, that's really all that's going to matter, isn't it? The reality of heaven. Here's the reality of heaven. The reality of heaven is not how special the place is, but how special the God who rules over it is. I just want to be where you are. The place is not going to matter, right? Lord, I just want to be where you are. If it's in the desert, fine. I just want to be where you are. If it's in the mountains, fine. I just want to be where you are. If it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I just want to be where you are. I don't care where I am as long as I'm with you. You may not see this now, but when we are face to face with Christ, when we look at his face, something amazing is going to happen. The things of this world will go strangely dim. Family, for us today, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And after Christ rose from the grave, he promised them something very, very special. 
he rose from the grave and told his people, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. For more information about Central Baptist Church, go to www.cbcaurora.com.